There's a yellow flag. Something's happened. Who is it? Where is it? It is Denny Holm. Denny Holm has spun out and leaves the racetrack. And Emerson Fittipaldi goes into third place. David Pearson moves into fourth. George Fulmer takes fifth. Peter Rapson coming on up here, and he also will pass Denny Holm. So what a bad piece of luck for Denny. Jackie, what are your comments on this sudden dramatic turn of events? Well, it's been a fantastically exciting race. Emerson Fittipaldi came from right from the back. Right from the back, threw all of those cars, did a beautiful job. Some of the best driving I've seen him doing for a long time. Denny Holm had himself really well placed to go to Daytona, and he spun. Now, whether he's going to manage to get to that trip or not, only the last few laps are going to tell. A terrific race so far. And perhaps therein lies the tale of a thing called racing luck. Mark Donahue is way out here in front. We have, in effect now, moved it down to a seven-car race with Holm dropping back, five cars seem set. The struggle would be now between A.J. Foyt and Emerson Fittipaldi. We'll have more racing shortly, but now let's go to Frank Gifford in Dallas. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And I'm like in an especially good mood today. This was a very fun episode. It was that a we very have. fun episode to do. Well, we've already done it, but you guys are about to experience it. We have Matt Stone on the podcast. He's an award-winning freelance journalist, author, broadcaster, event MC, automotive consultant, international concourse judge, former editor of Motor Trend Classic Magazine. He's worked as a professional automotive journalist, photographer since 1990. His specialties are history, design, motorsport, automotive pop culture, and interview features. That's and basically what our show is. <laughs> like, he is so well-tailored to yeah, the show. Um, for our purposes, he's the author of the IROC Porsches, which IROC is International Race, Race of, Champions. of Champions. Yeah, the International Race of Champions, Porsche 911 RSR, and the men who race them. So I had always heard of the IROC Porsches. I didn't realize it was one year only yeah, one that make, these one cars year. were used. One make, one year, it's first year of the like IROC series. Like literally just lightning in a bottle, flash in a pan. 100%. It absolutely was. And IROC was, uh, at the time, was promoted as the American Motorsports all-star game. Right. So we're going to grab this guy from this uh, this thing. They'll we're take grab the best of NASCAR, yeah, the best of Indy, the yeah. best of Formula One. Yeah, grab all these different guys and put them in these one-make cars and say, all right, go. And then and figure see out who's what the best. Figure out who is the best. And Matt Stone wrote this book. It's phenomenal. It's the IROC Porsches, IROC Porsches, the International Race of Champions, Porsche 911 RSR, and the men who race them. The, the link to the book is in the show notes. I highly recommend it. It's well-written, well-shot, and it is a great glimpse into the history of something that was very special. You know, IROC kind of started out like this. It kind of peaked a little bit at the beginning for me. And well, then it turned into like oval racing at the end. <laughs> right. But this it was, definitely, yeah. This is a very, and everybody knows these cars, the the orange and the blue and so the purple so bright, and the green and the white. Because as we learned, they were made for TV. Yeah. Color TV was relatively yeah. new at the time. Yep. And so it's just these Skittles racing around on the track. Yeah, yeah. And before we get to our interview with Matt, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, gear, stickers, publications... 
they box them up and send them right there to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. PetroBox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the PetroBox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. Yeah, so I could start introducing you to the IROC series, telling you all the history, kind of how it started and everything else. Then I just realized I was going to do something and be like, oh, this is what happened. Nah, let's just let Matt do it. Hello. Mr. Matt Stone, it's Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. Hey, Chris, how are you? Good. I'm here with my co-host, Jake. Hi there. Hey, Jake, how are you? I'm good. I uh, spent the entire morning reading your book. And watching old footage from from the IROC series, which was awesome. Not just the Porsche stuff. I watched all kinds of different things. And, yeah, uh, kind of th- thank heaven for YouTube, huh? Yeah, right? I mean, I can still go back and watch that stuff. Imagine it being like 10 years ago where none of that existed. And you were just had to, you had to actually live in your own mind and your own memory. How terrible. Or God forbid, go to like a bookstore or an old video VHS place. Yeah. Yeah, and, and probably some of that wouldn't have even found it then. No, True. which is strange for how popular it was. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, I want to talk about IROC, but I also want to try and get a foundation of, of you as an author. Why did you decide to write this book? You know, kind of where are you coming from as an author and as a journalist? Well, several reasons, and I'll try to be succinct about it. No, you don't have to. Um, we got all the time in the world. You can, you, <laughs> can, okay. you can bloviate as much as you'd like. We allow it. Bloviating. Hmm. I don't like like the sound of that, boys. Uh, Anyway, not um, saying that's what you're going to do. You're free. A couple of a couple of reasons. Number one, I remember it. I was a a pretty young racing enthusiast at the time, but I remember that series because Riverside was my home racetrack at the time. I lived in a little burb called Upland, which is about 20 miles west of where Riverside Raceway was. And I used to go to Riverside all the time with my dad, with my friends. I mean, you know, that was kind of my home track along with Ontario Motor Speedway. But anyway, um, I remember that series and, and those guys, those impossibly great, wonderful champions, especially from the first season. And I always felt that that first season was a bit of a unicorn I guess because it was run just the first time and only time with those, with those uh, Porsches. And then, you know, as the years roll along, the series became decidedly less international. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, there was a brief period, a couple of, couple of seasons when they ran only ovals. And of course, by then they were using the, there was Camaros and Dodges and Firebirds. And you remember those cars. And, um, if you figure they they went to these American tube frame cars and more and more NASCAR guys, and then they stopped running road courses, it really wasn't the international race of champions anymore. It was sort of junior junior level NASCAR spec racing. Right, and more and, of, and was that, it kind of like was that sponsor driven? <clears throat> I think that was part of it. Sponsor driven, and and also. Um, you know, NASCAR was gaining in popularity and, uh, and NASCAR and TV was becoming much more of a thing. And so they, um, you know, they paired up with NASCAR racing dates and it just 
all became one big pile of coverage. Well, I mean, originally and, when they came up with the series in the first place, it was because of the resurgence, or the, I'm not sorry, the resurgence, but the emergence of motorsport being able to be watched on TV in the early 70s, right? Yep. Yeah, that was all part of it. What, what was the, tell me the story of, of IROC. How did it come about and why did it come about? Well, the why and the how are slightly reversed, but, but the why is that um, uh, guys like Roger Penske and, and some others were all kind of wondering, you know, hey, shouldn't there be a series that, that puts all of these different drivers in, in matching cars and maybe we can help learn and determine or have some fun trying to play with the notion of who's really best? It you know, sounds like it a the, total ego ego thing it, i mean it's is all... it the can is it the can-am guys or is it the the sports car guys or the nascar guys or the indie guys and it i think it was just you know very high level bench racing is is kind of where it all kind of came from did it did it in your mind did it succeed did it do that initially and then as time went on because you think of it i think of it as like i wasn't there i was born in 81 so this this stuff and i and i watched a little bit of it with my dad and stuff when i was growing up but not 81 yeah not i in, think i think i think i remember 81 <laughs> <laughs> sure. like, i can't imagine what it would be like in 1974 to turn on the television and basically see an olympics of motorsport it's kind of what, it, or like an all-star game of motorsport or whatever it is. Yeah, that, that's a good analogy. And, all-star game, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and all, Olympics is kind of not, maybe not the right way to put it. But if you could, it's, I can't think of another sport where you could do this, where you could pull anybody from all these different uh, divisions of, because motorsport is very unique in that it has a bunch of subdivisions of car culture. Right, you've got um, NHRA, which apparently they tried to invite some people to IROC, but they would, oh, they would they never. Really? Yeah, that's, that might maybe wasn't their deal, <laughs> you know, turning. And then you had like NASCAR, and then you had uh, Grand Prix, and you had all these different different people that could come and compete from all these different subdivisions. No other sport did that. And then you take the best of these different uh, these different prof- professions of a sport throw them in cars and go, all right, which one of you is best? And these guys, especially, you know, it's not the same today, and we can talk about that later, but these guys lived it, right? They wanted, they were getting like two grand for winning a race, or obviously the, if you won Daytona, I think it was a bunch more money, but in general, in the motorsports, around the motorsports world, these dudes weren't raking in like huge amount, like they weren't talking to Patron and getting like, you know, $5 million things from Puma (laughs) shoes and all this other stuff. They were just doing it because they loved it. And those dudes had to have had huge egos, not like, oh, yeah. not like an ego, like an asshole, but like an ego. Yeah, of not, like- not to you. I mean, sort of to kind of use the Kevin Costner analogy. It's for the love of the game. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, they, they did it to beat the other guy for bragging rights and, and, and for the money. And so, which was pretty good money. You won a race and won $2,000. That was a good day. Sure. Uh, so it, it was for the love of the game. To, to, to beat the best of the other guys and to make a few bucks. And they all did it, and they all seemed to enjoy it. Now, did it really prove anything? I don't know if prove is the right word, but, I mean, it certainly demonstrated, I believe, in this first season and, and ultimately later, in the first season that the, the all-arounders, and I don't mean roundy-rounders, but the all-arounders that were could do anything, mm-hmm. Donahue, Revson, Fulmer, the uh, Pearson, the guys that were truly versatile and would win on a lawnmower. 
<laughs> well, to be um, fair, Donahue had a little bit of experience with rear engine cars. Well, and so did Fulmer. I mean, yeah. you know, these these guys knew how to pedal Porsches. There's no question about that. And um, it is a little surprising, however, that, you know, a Formula One and Can-Am champion like Dennis Holm didn't do better. You know, he started every race in the middle of the pack, and he finished every race in the middle of the pack. So 1967 Formula One champion, for Christ's sake. Right. What do you think it and, was? Um, like In the book, you say that some guys just didn't like the cars. Was that part of it? Or you know, what can explain for some of these discrepancies? There was, there was a clip that I was watching where somebody razzed um, uh, Jackie Stewart, who was one of the commentators, and he's like, hey, the first three guys here on the podium, none of them are from Grand Prix. They're all just these... You know, these other types of drivers, you would think Grand Prix is like the pinnacle of everything, and none of them were in the, on the podium. And Jackie Stewart's like, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, and that's the other thing that I think that was emergent of that is a couple of the NASCAR guys, namely specifically uh, David Pearson and Bobby Allison, were outstanding race car drivers in anything they paddled. Those guys were good. They were smooth. They were fast. And, and you know, they did. That's why they did well. Bobby Unser acquitted himself very well. Of course, if you can drive a car up Pike's Peak, you know, two turning, two burning the whole time with the tail out, you, you can drive an understeering, an oversteering car. I like two so, burning, two turning. I've heard that before. <laughs> I love that. That's going to stick with me. Yeah, Bobby Unser could pedal. And it didn't matter what it was, as as could Pearson, as could Allison. These guys were good, and 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 that's why a couple of them made the the made it to the final dance at Daytona, made the made made the final six, because they could pedal anything. And and again, um, you know, Allison, the the silver fox, the old charming NASCAR good old boy, made it to the finals, and Dennis Holm didn't. So uh, you know, that's just kind of what what the vetting process of the, of the races did. And of course, as time went along and they got to be more and more on ovals and the tube frame cars and who started, who started winning all the championships, Mark Martin and uh, Dale Earnhardt. And, you know, that, that was that evidence, the sea change of where those guys got more and more comfortable on those tracks and in those cars. Right. Right. So well, I mean, know, naturally, right. Yeah. I, I don't know that it proved who was the best. Uh, but it certainly demonstrated that the all arounders on the road courses and in the Porsches, you know, had, had the best odds and did the best. And then later as the series and car cars and, and venues evolved, the guys who are naturally in that environment, they did better. Um, of course you also had, you know, a couple of three champions like Al Unser senior, Bobby Unser and Mario Andretti that could have won that series in roller skates. I mean, cause they're, <laughs> they're, they're just so superlative. It didn't matter. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it demonstrated that, that the specialists didn't always fare as well as the all arounders did. Of course, interesting. Again, yeah. Uber talents like Donahue and Fulmer, you know, they, they rose to the top and, 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 and we, we watched it happen. Go ahead. So now we know why, you know, we, which is just like this is the best reason ever. I was like, well, why not? Is what seems to be uh, <laughs> what seems to be the reason behind doing this. Is why not do it? And but but how did this come together? Who was who was involved, and and what did it take to make this happen? 
it was the the holy trinity of uh, of uh, Iraq and motorsports at the time. Roger Penske, uh, Les Richter, who was the uh, the, the general manager and president of Riverside International Raceway and a former Rams linebacker, if you read that little bit. You know, six foot, six foot, four inch, 280 pound <laughs> Les Richter. And believe me, when he called the driver's meeting, those guys showed up and they listened. <laughs> because, matter of fact, Mike Phelps was telling me, he says, you know, we used to fly. Who's that? Uh, Who's Mike Phelps? Sorry. Who's oh, Mike? sorry. Mike Mike Phelps was the third guy oh, okay, in that okay. triumvirate. He was the, the TV, media, and PR specialist. And he put together the, the, the TV deal with Rune Arledge and those guys. And he says, you know, we used to fly, we used to fly in coach back when, you know, normal people could were comfortable in a coach seat. And he says, we used to get a three across. And he says, Richter's ass took up two seats. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look, there's a picture of him in the book. You see him from the back and he's wearing these crazy ass check pants and all the drivers are standing in front of him. Guy guy is as big as, as, as an Amana side by side. Just huge and solid. So it was those three. Penske, who, who was kind of sort of in charge of the cars and the deal. And then there was uh, a Richter who was the venues and the drivers. And then uh, Mike Phelps, who was the, the TV deal and the marketing and the promo. It was the three of them that kind of cooked the whole thing up and put it together. They formed an entity called Penske productions. That was the, the owner and, and, um, arbiter of the series. <clears throat> and, um, and it was those three that, that primarily did it. There probably were some other ancillary players, but it was really those three that they were the partners, the principals financially, and uh, and and the, the the brains behind the deal for sure. So, how did they come up with the format? What was what is the format of the IROC race? Like, how do you win? You know, how, what kind, is it like a points based system? You know, how do you win the championship? Well, they they thought about this extremely carefully. And, and the, the formula was that um, they would have three heat races all happened in one weekend at Riverside Raceway. And then the, the, the top six points leaders in those three heat races would go to the prom at Daytona, would go to the Super Bowl. And, and they did some other things to keep the deal as, as fair as possible. Uh, for the first race, they drew straws on who would get which car. So uh, they had a total of 15 cars and 12 of them were needed for each race. And then three were backups and parts cars and stuff like that. But, uh, they would, uh, they had a practice day the week before or days when they all went out and got 20, 30 laps in the cars at Riverside. So they could shake down and kind of fine tune the cars and Penske's guys were not allowed to touch them. There were mechanics that came over from Stuttgart from Porsche that cranked on the cars. So nobody could say, Oh, Penske's guys took care of Penske's drivers, right? Because they weren't allowed near those things. Matter of fact, Roger Penske very clearly told me, he said, told Donna, you don't even look at those cars. <laughs> if you look at one car, 
we're going to have a problem. Right. So they, um, they drew straws. And then from there, there was a rotation scheme. Whereas whatever car you got out of in race one, you got into a different one for race two and race three. So the cars got passed around. And Fulmer told me that he said, even during the practice and the testing, he says, you know, you always, there's a couple of cars that just seemed a little sharper or maybe not quite as sharp as the others, even though they, the factory did as much as they could to make them. Imagine being even, that good. Imagine even being such Stevens. a good driver that you can tell a difference between identically set up and cars that were manufactured yep. one after the other on the assembly line, getting out and driving and going, yeah, that one's a little bit better. Imagine yeah, those being are, that competent. That's insane. Those are those are well-calibrated asses, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I mean, and so they said, okay, those are going to be our backup cars. And if, if one of the other race cars gets crunched, well, we'll, we'll rotate one into service, but obviously it's going to go to a different driver than drove it before. But, um, it is a little funny. The black car chassis 0124 only ran two races, Riverside race two and Riverside race three, won them both with different drivers, but okay. That car was good, obviously. <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, but, uh, the, oh, the, another thing that they did to really keep the field shaken up is they did an inverted start based on the, the previous races, finishing results. Really? If you finished 12th in race one, you were on the pole for race two. How did the drivers feel about that? They thought that that was fair. It okay. even the, it even the board. Um, especially for, you know, some of the guys that weren't as quick in the, in these cars, they weren't used McCluskey and, and Gordy John Cock and some of the others, John Cock said, he said, you know, I'm not the guy who jumps in a new kind of car at a new track and immediately goes fast. I need time to get up to speed. It takes me time to get up to speed. So for a guy like him, you know, that may have finished 10th or 11th, he starts on the front row of the next race, and that gives him a little, a, a little more of an even shot. Sure. So they did, I think, what was reasonable to, to level the field. You know, identically matched cars to the extent possible. Uh, drew blind straws for the first race, and then a, a rotation scheme for race two, three, and four. And then um, the inverted start. You know, that, that tends to shake out a lot of, of, of regularities. And if, if one car was a duffer, then guess what? Some other guy got it the next race. It's just like what me when I go out go-karting with my buddies. You know, everybody <laughs> gets in a different cart. We all kind of look and see which one we think is the fastest with the previous group that's out there racing around like, oh, cart seven. I'm going to try and get in cart seven. But then when you go out there, the guy just says, you sit in that one. Like, oh, man, I saw the cart seven is like the black car. You know, everybody wants to be in that one. <laughs> of course. So how did, you know. Well, see, I, I, I weigh about, I weigh about. 245. So whatever car I get in slows down because of power to weight ratio. I mean, that's, that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. But anyway, you were going to, you were going to ask. Yeah. I was just, was going to say it was, this was a very odd time for Porsche. You know, Can-Am was basically canned more or less ending the 917. The 917 was no longer usable. It was basically outlawed in, in many formats. The 911 yep. was not the most ideal thing ever for the company. Um, Volkswagen and Porsche were kind of at odds with each other. The uh, 911 was on its way out. They wanted to move to water cooling. And even before 
the 24 hours of Daytona, Donahue said, quote, we value our relationship with Porsche, and if this is what they desire us to race, we will. So even Donahue wasn't super excited to get into an RSR and race at Daytona. So the 911 is, we look back, like our our rose-colored glasses, we look back and we see this IROC series and we see Daytona, and we're like, wow, these 911 RSRs are so amazing. But at the time, the 911 wasn't that cool. So what is, how did this happen with Porsche getting involved with IROC with these cars? I don't, it doesn't make sense, really. Well, it's, it, it kind of actually ultimately does, although we or they may have known it at the time. Because, of course, the 934 and the turbo era was just around the corner. Right. And they were already going there. I mean, you know, the 917 days were done. But, you know, they had pretty much learned how to turbocharge a motor. They had to. And with with the 917 yeah. gone, they, the 911 was all that was left. They were just, you know, in 72, 73, they got left with this 911. Go, I guess this is what we're going to use. <laughs> it's what we're going to do. It's what we're going to do. So it, which has kind of led to like this entire, you know, the whole 70s into the mid 80s of the Porsche, which is kind of like the golden era of it. The motorsports of it happened because, well, shit, we're fucked. I guess we're just going to have to use this. This is, all, this is what we got. <laughs> yeah, so let's exactly. make the most of it. So how did it end up in the IROC series, though? And, of course, it became the 935, and, yeah. and we know that we know the rest of that tune. Yeah, and that's I, I was um, talking to Jake earlier before before we called you, and I still think that's one of the coolest things about the Porsche 911. And I have one. You know, I'm, I, I would call myself not a fanboy of Porsche, but I am a fanboy of my car. And one of the <laughs> coolest things about my car is that when I go to, a, like, a vintage race, when I go to the Hawk at Road America, I go to Car Week at Monterey and, and the Historics, I look at the car, I look at a 935, and I go, there's a lot of my car in there. They took you this betcha. chassis, and they extrapolated incredible amounts of performance out of the same engine that's in my car and the same chassis that I have. So then when I look at this IROC series, and I look at these cars, I'm like, wow, that's basically a really a $2 million version of my car. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what do you have? I'm curious. I have a 72911 that I built a short stroke 3.2 engine for mm. with PMO carburetors. It's fun. <laughs> and Jake like has one too. He's got I, have a, I have a 70 911T that's mostly stock. Okay, I have an 89 right a 3.2 coupe. Right on. Yeah, so they're, we, they're great. We, we, all drink, we all drink the same Kool-Aid, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Absolutely. So how did Porsche get involved with IROC? It just seems like I, I if, if I was an organizer, I would have tried to go... I don't know. I, I'm not sure what I would have went for at the time. Maybe something more Trans Am oriented. I'm, I don't know. Like a Well, you, you, are, you are sort of on the right path because that was discussed. Uh, you'll recall, of course, Roger Penske was a Chevrolet dealer and had yeah. won back-to-back Trans Am championships with Z28s. Exactly. So that kind of car was discussed. And uh, I think they talked about Camaros. They talked about Mustangs. I even was told fairly authoritatively that there was even brief consideration of doing it in formula Fords, mm-hmm. little open wheelers. And, and, um, there was, there was some consternation about that, but as I understand it, it was, it was Penske's relationship with Porsche as a Porsche team contestant and, and a lot of influence from Donahue saying, you know what? Porsche can build these things. They know how to build them. They can make them good. They can make them right. The cars are tough. 
that'll be great for those tracks. And, you know, we really need to go do a deal with Porsche. So when you look at the, like the Trans Am stuff that's going on, Penske's doing the prep for the, his team, right? They're doing, they're getting the car and they're doing the prep to build the car to go out to the track, right? It's not, it's yeah. not Chevy doing it for them and giving them a car no, like Porsche no, no. did. Yeah, that's that's all at Penske's race shop. Yeah, right. So it's is is that kind of like they they saw the factory potential of non bias with Porsche? Yes, that was part of it. They recognized that that if Penske, being the rather brilliant guy that he is recognize that he couldn't put fingerprints on those cars without being accused of something. Oh, for sure. And so, uh, yeah, that was part of it is because Stuttgart had the capability to build 15 cars, which Penske really didn't, you know, they were a small shop, Mm -hmm. you know, they had room for two Camaros and an Indy car. And that was about it. And, um, relatively speaking, and they recognized that, that Stuttgart had the engineering might and the capacity to build 15 cars. So how far was Penske of course they off were so, the Penske of we, that we think of today? Because you say he's got a small shop with two cars. and it, How far removed is that from the Penske we think of now? Because we think of like this monolithic. Galaxies. You know, Galaxies. Just, so they're still relatively small at the time. Oh, yes. So yeah, 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 they were is, still relative. This is a really big sacrifice for him to get involved with this. Honestly, it must have been a strain on his finances, and it must have, been a, it must have been a risk. There was, cer- there was certainly some risk, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So Porsche. Yeah, and and so they went to Porsche, and Porsche was already developing the the RSR, and and kind of and I guess Donahue and or Fulmer went to Germany and drove them and tested them and said, yeah, we kind of like these cars; these will work. And so they cut a deal, and and Penske Productions actually bought the cars. And How I, much money I am do you know? Told, uh, something in the high 20,000s range. That's a good investment. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they sold them for like 20 or 22. At the end of the season, they sold them off as, as used race cars. Yeah, in the back of a mm. newspaper or something, I'm sure. Yeah, and they're, they're 2 million bucks now for one. At least. If somebody will sell one. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. But, uh, but yeah, it makes sense. I mean, they figured here's a production-based factory-developed, tough, reliable race car that, that people will recognize. You know, everybody knows a, a 911 Formula Ford. They wouldn't know a Ralt from a, a whoever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the Porsche was recognizable, a car that, that TV viewers could relate to. And of course, there came the 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 M M&M and M candy color jelly bean hues that they were all painted different colors. Why did they do so that? They, that's that's something that carried through IROC for yeah, for a so long they time. Would pop, so they'd pop on TV. Uh huh. Yeah, the, the 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 main goal was to get them to pop in color on TV, Technicolor or whatever they called it. Right. I mean, yeah, I suppose um, in nineteen seventy four, that was. How about that? Yeah, yeah that was, that was <laughs> that a special was time for thing. color TV. Absolutely. That was the main thing. Yeah, they were they wanted to be in living color. And all <laughs> the cars were were different. Even the blues and the greens were different. I mean, it's they all have the colors have different names. They were all factory colors at the time. And um and although some of the differences are subtle, I imagine on some televisions you couldn't tell the Mexico blue car from the something or other blue car. Right. Uh, or the greens looked to me looked very similar, but uh, but they were distinct enough 
And of course, by putting the driver's names on each door and across the windshield header, between a car number, the color, and the driver's names, I mean, people could tell on television who was in what car doing what to whom. Well, that was very and unique that was to all have part the... of the whole marketing scheme of the deal, and and it was brilliant stuff. Yeah, very had, innovative, had, really, at the time. You had the the big block font on the door too and that's very unique usually you see like a little cursive writing of like donahue and it's like right above the a pillar or whatever this was just donahue like on the door <laughs> allison and they're just massive font on the side of the car made for tv special yeah you had to be able to read it when they were going by i suppose yeah we didn't have no high def back then so yeah you needed big letters how did jackie Black. stewart get involved jackie stewart the wee Scott was on tap to drive. And like three months before they got going, he retired. Oh man. And it, it, it was a requirement that you be a active working professional racing driver to participate in the series. So they went and got some guy named Foyt took his place. <laughs> Uh, just his commentary just adds so much when you. Oh, when, it's terrific, isn't it? It's just like I, I've watched these videos of him like driving around the Nurburgring in a Rolls Royce, commentating about this, and then you know he comments on the race and he's talking to the drivers afterward. <clears throat> I mean, he is such a personality, and he added so much that I don't know that watching it on TV, I don't know that it would have been the same without him. I'm just thinking of being, just being an American sitting down with uh, with like a Bud Light, you know, or whatever. I guess it wouldn't even be Bud Light. It just would have been a Did Bud Light. You probably would have had a Schlitz back then. Yeah, maybe a Schlitz. Didn't or, have like, yeah, or a, a PBR perhaps. Yeah, ham, maybe a Hams <laughs> if you lived up here in Minnesota. And you're watching this this British guy going, who the, who is this guy? Because <laughs> most of these dudes probably have no idea who Jackie Stewart is, I, have, I would imagine. And they just... He's just such a personality that you you just love him when he talks to the to the drivers and comments. It's awesome. I had I had him as a driver coach one time. You'll most have to tell us about that. Most intimidating damn thing I have ever done behind a wheel. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, he was great. He was great. Uh, it was in a a Ford program. I'll make it real brief, but he had like a a giant dog dish that sat on the hood of the car. And there was a tennis ball on the end of some fishing line. And his, his thing always was and remains smooth is fast. And he wanted you to be able to drive that car through corners without pitching the ball out of the ball. <laughs> and of course, first, you know, he, he demonstrates. So he, he goes out, I'm in the passenger seat. He goes out and he does one or two laps, the goddamn bolt ball doesn't even move <laughs> wow and then now it's my turn and and you know after a couple of laps i got a lot better when i stopped kind of like shaking <laughs> but uh but he was very very constructive as a driver's coach he never smacked me he never yelled at me he just said hey, sit there a little bit more little here here there and a little more now gas 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 and he was just wonderful so what was his biggest tip with how to, other than slow is, is good, what else did he say about, you know, improving your driving? Well, smooth, smooth is fast. That was, that, that was, was always one. his, yeah, he says, always just kind of pretend that the wheel, that the steering wheel, the steering shaft actually goes into a giant vat of frozen molasses. And you want to just turn it as smoothly and liquidly as you possibly can. 
hydraulically, I think he said. That was something I'll never forget. He says, yeah, just pretend that steering wheel that has no power steering and that steering wheel is connected to, is, is, is fully dipped in frozen molasses. Yeah. And turn it like it's frozen molasses. That to me, I've never forgotten that. And you know, it's think about it. I mean, no, other than, right, of course, for sure. If you're you're avoiding, unless you're avoiding an accident, when you know some some pretty quick actions might be necessary. But but if you're looking for that ideal pathway to keep the car on balance through corners, think about it. Yeah. So the number one thing you don't want to do is take the balance in, and throw out. it around. You don't want to throw the yeah, balance from left smooth, to right or whatever. Smooth in, smooth out. And, uh, yeah, it was great, great fun. And like I said, just intimidating. <laughs> I can only imagine. Like, wait a minute. You want me to drive Jackie Stewart around this track? So tell me a little bit about Roger Penske building a street version. I hear that there was a street version of one of these cars. Yes, there was. Well, he just kind of wanted to understand the package a little bit and know what it was like. So here, here Dr. Ernst Fuhrman... Uh, they they took a really pretty dark dark Sunoco blue Targa and put the uh, and and put all the the IROC stuff in it. You know the the tw- the twin plug three liter MFI motor and and all the all the IROC guts in the streetcar. And that was Mr. Penske's everyday driver for about a year. You got to be kidding me! <laughs> Holy crap! In a Targa even? In the Targa with the with yeah, the little with, six with inch the f- wheels. With no, it had it had big we it, okay. it had the IROC wheels and tires okay. oh, on it. Oh, it had the but, flares um, on it then. But yeah, and and, okay. and a completely stock interior. You know, it just <laughs> the average person on the street wouldn't look twice and think there's a race car under there. Well, they would look twice when they hear it. I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the three liter motor, tell us about the the engine that's in this car. It was uh, production-based in terms of its general architecture, um, magnesium-cased, twin plug heads, and a uh, uh, mechanical fuel injection system with uh, tall intake stacks and, and butterflies, as opposed to the slide what they call them cigar cutters, the, the, the sliding side throttles, which are generally a little more touchy than the butterflies are. So butterfly control to keep the, the throttle response more consistent. Right. And they were rated at something like 300 and I think officially it was 315 horsepower. And, but everybody seems to concede they were more like three and a quarter and uh, connected to the type 915 five-speed manual transaxle. A uh, fairly lightweight motor, and they re- they revved them to I think to seventy five hundred, as I recall, or seventy two hundred, something like that. Well, I saw a sticker Naturally in the beginning of your book that says uh, "shift at seventy seven hundred and keep your foot to the floor when you do 7, it." Seventy seven hundred. That's mm-hmm. right. That's yeah, yeah. the number. So, Thanks for the reminder. Oh, no, yeah. that sticker so, is awesome. I got to get one of those for my car with a lower rev limit, of course. <laughs> I would like to have one of those. That would be great. Of course. Yeah. It, yeah. That's just too charming. Uh, I think they, and that's why it says, please make, yeah, and make sure to push the clutch all the way yep. to the floor. Translation, what that means, hey, you NASCAR clod. <laughs> no, no speed shifting these things. Yep. Like they could do with their M22 rock crushers and her shifters in hmm. their Chevrolets. 
So, um, yeah, that was primarily for them. And, of course, you'll notice a little break in the lockout for reverse. Yep. So somebody didn't abs- accidentally grab reverse. But, um, you know, the transmission, those transmissions, as, as you guys and a lot of other people know, they're, they're good enough and tough enough, but you cannot overly abuse them. And, and that's a little bit what they were worried about. And, yeah, there were some transmission problems on some of the cars. The, the transmission, the, the guys that, that were just a little too abusive with them, you know, caused some problems. But that was about, I mean, that was about the only thing that ever really went wrong with those cars. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes, one time was ignition. It was, it was an oil leak due to a spin and that kind of stuff. But the cars generally proved tough and robust, except the transmissions if they were mishandled ham-fistedly were, were slightly fragile. Yeah, I mean, I, I broke one. You know, I, <laughs> I ripped all the teeth off the ring and pinion gear of, of one after a lot of abuse. You know, of I, course you did. Yeah, of course I did, yes. <laughs> the problem is, is that you, you want, and it's usually when you want to race somebody, you, know, you drive yep. around and you're fine, right? You're just, you're driving, you're fine. Even when you're driving quick, you slow shift, it's comfortable. You're, you're like second gear, third gear. And then somebody in a Mustang pulls up next to you and looks over at you and, wow, that guy's little car. I'm going to blow the doors off that guy's little car. And lo, lo and behold, does he know that I've got 280 horsepower? And, and this actually happened the other day. And okay. I, the guy in the Mustang actually had 800 horsepower. So it, it went really, really poorly. But I still, you know, you're, you're crunching in the first and second and second and third. If you try to shift too fast, yep. I mean, you just crunch. And it's no good. Yep. But you know, that's what they were trying to avoid with that sticker. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's absolutely charming. I think like, okay, somebody, somebody recognized the need and, and came up with a thing to address it. Now, did anybody pay attention? You know, who knows? Who cares? <laughs> Probably but not. It, it was an idea and it was awfully cute. I thought. So some of the guys you said didn't like the cars. Do you know who said they didn't like them? And did they say why? Bobby Allison didn't care for them. And, um, never really said, I think it was cause at least once Bobby was in a car that, that had problems. And he said the car, he said, he complained about it and said, you know, there's something wrong with this car's duff. Something's wrong with it. And they said, well, sorry, you know, it's already been assigned and we're on the, on the, on the, we're getting ready to grid the race and you're just going to have to live with it. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he didn't like it. And, uh, and, and Bobby Unser was very critical of the car. He said, and I have him quoted as saying, man, that was a shitty, shitty race car. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say why? And, and yeah, he says, he just, he says, this setup, he said, felt was all right. He said, oversteered like crazy. Hmm. And there, who was a guy, you know, a, a, a sprint midget car and Pike's peak racer yeah. that drove tail out half of his life. Right. <laughs> and, and he, he didn't like those cars. He said, you know, 911's a great car for your attorney or accountant, drive around on the street, whatever. He says, but this was just not one of Porsche's better race cars. Really? And yeah, yeah, he, he didn't care for them much at all. And uh, I, I, I think those were the two most vocal guys. Uh, another one who I thought had an interesting commentary is it after the second race, or was it the third? Second race, I guess. Foyt said, you know, I just feel like I'm finally kind of coming to grips with the little Porsches. 
because you know he he was not he had not ever raced a Porsche before, right? Although he did later to to very great effect nine thirty fives and nine fifty sixes and sixty twos, but um, but he had not had experience in these cars and and he was a little bit of a fish out of water although a marvelous road racer by any standard, uh, and he said you know I'm finally coming to grips with these cars and getting used to them. And I'm guessing that if AJ had, you know, three more races instead of one more to, to really get used to him, he could have been a contender. So tell us about Daytona. So you do all the three races. Was it two or three at Riverside? Three. Three. So you did three races at Riverside and you take the, you know, of the 12 and then you take the six or seven from there and move on to Daytona. Yep. The top, the top six and they go to Daytona. Tell us about that race at Daytona. Daytona, it's important to understand that uh, the, the Daytona finale, the Super Bowl, let's call it, was winner take all. Oh. So mm. there wasn't like, okay, he finished third in the championship. No. When Donahue won the Daytona finale, he was champ. That was it. Points were out the window at that point. I love that. And yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's winner take all. And he did. He, uh, he led all but one lap. Of the finale, uh, Revson led, I believe, lap two or the first lap, but um, Donahue dominated as he did at Riverside. And he just, um, he was in the orange car, a car which had run all three of the uh, the heat races at, uh, at Riverside, although did not win any of them, but ran and finished all of the races at uh at Daytona at, at uh, Riverside. And then that was uh, Donahue's ride starting from the pole at, uh, at Daytona. And he just <laughs> checked out. Um, and that was, a, it was a little unfortunate. There were a couple of DNFs there that um, Foyt DNF Pearson DNF and Fulmer DNF. So of the three starters, three finished. But what I think is just hilarious, I, I love this story, is um, speaking of transmission problems, somehow Pearson's car was stuck in third gear. So, of course, he couldn't get any speed on the on the Daytona high banks or the straights. He had no speed. He's in third gear. Right. Wow. So, you know what he did? Instead of pulling into the pits after realizing he was done, he got up on the oval, took a full lap on the oval, and waved to the crowd. Oh, cool. Because <laughs> he's an NASCAR guy, and that's his track, and these were his peeps. And he was done. So in third gear, foot to the floor, he went around the oval, one-handed it, and waved to the crowd. Pulled into the pits, got out, and his day was done. That's I thought cool. that was a, a brilliantly clever and classy move, you know? And he said he loved it. He just thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing and, and darn near won race two. Pearson was very close to, he led and was close to winning race two. So tell us about writing this book and talking to some, some of these guys are gone, right? I mean, you can't talk to them, but you were able to yeah. talk to a few. And what was that like hearing these guys talk about some of these, you know, you know, the nostalgia and thinking back of, of these kinds of glory days? Well, glory days is a good way to put it. And uh, racers race and love to race. And they remember every race they've ever done and are usually happy to talk about it. And in this case, you know, every, the, the guys I was able to talk to, I would say the most 
Well, uh, the guy who helped me the most and told me the most was George Fulmer, which is why I asked him to do the foreword for the book, because he remembers that series very fondly. And because uh, he won one of the races and he was in the finale and uh, and just really loved the whole deal and was close friends with a couple of the guys. And so so that was just a, a great time for and he loved Riverside. Fulmer just loved Riverside. So these were happy trails for him. And, uh, and and it was great. I was very fortunate to catch Bobby Unser, not six months before he passed away. Uh, you know, sometimes timing is everything. Yeah. And uh, I had a great, you know, 10 minute, one hour long conversation with Bobby Unser about a lot of things. He was, he was, he was still his mental acuity, even though his poor body was checking out. His mental acuity was excellent. At least it was that day. And we were on the phone together for darn near an hour. And um, Bobby Unser is not shy <laughs> or or weak of opinion. And and he gave it to me all barrels. And 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 we just thoroughly enjoyed a great conversation about about the series and and whatever did he say anything that struck you when you say he gave it to you with you know with both barrels what do you mean by that because there's something you can share with us that you know kind of lends to that thought well you know like i said everybody kind of has an opinion or not about 911s as street cars and race cars but when he said man that was just a shitty race car <laughs> that's just that crystallizes the whole deal right there. And again, for a guy who clearly didn't like the car, mm -hmm. he ran very well in that series. He had multiple seconds and third places. I mean, he wasn't a backmarker by any stretch. So Unser could pedal and did in that series and, and qualified for the dance at Daytona and, um, and finished and finished pretty well. And, um, it clearly was working for him. And of course he came back in successive years and won the championship during the Camaro era. So, uh, so Bobby was on board with the formula and, and ultimately did very well. Uh, George was terrific. Uh, as I said, and he, I've known him for years and we have a, an easy, nice relationship and he was very forthcoming and, um, really dialed me in and clued me in on how good, um, Pearson and Allison did in those cars. They both led races. And, and there was one time the, the race that George won race two at Riverside. Uh, Pearson was in second and was dogging him the whole way. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, and the one thing I love that George told me, he says, you know, he says, Pearson, he says, um, if you were behind him trying to catch him, you knew you were going to have to work for it. And if he was behind you, you knew he was going to threaten you the whole way. Well, these guys are and all he, competitors. I mean, they're all yeah, like the best at what they do. Yeah, those were gold standard guys for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's kind of what I want to shift into, you know, thinking about these men. And then you think of motorsports today. And I, I'm sure a lot of the motorsports guys are great dudes. But I can't see Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, like you just can't see these guys getting in. I don't know what. I mean, what would be a cool IROC car today? I guess sure you could say a GT3, 
uh, cup car or something. Let's say you were going to get, you're going to, you're going to redo the first race, you know, like an IROC classic or something like that. So you get a brand, a bunch of grand, brand new GT3, you know, cup cars and you call up Lewis Hamilton and go, Hey man, do you want to come do this? This would be fun. So it'd be great. I just feel like it just wouldn't happen. I feel like there's no way that anything like this could ever happen again. There's just not enough money. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think, well, first of all, yeah, putting together a dozen drivers in today's parlance of that 1973-74 caliber, mm-hmm. you know, those level of dudes and and equating that to today's level of dudes and dudettes would cost a billion dollars, mm-hmm. first of all. And I would also guess that schedules and sponsorship exclusivities would probably preclude much of it. You know, I, I can't, I can't see the, the Chevy contracted exclusive NASCAR guy and say, boy, man, that, that Porsche, what a great car. Right. Or that Mustang, you know, that, that ain't going to happen. Well, it kind of lends to the fact of that's why if you look at motorsport today and you look at the slow trail off of its popularity, there might be a, a crossover point where everything we're talking about, where it's like, yeah, these guys can't do this. The sponsorships or schedules, the attitudes, whatever, is maybe why if you it, it's pretty obvious that, that could be one of the reasons why motorsport just isn't as popular anymore is because none of this stuff is possible and all the organic cool stuff that used to happen isn't allowed to happen anymore. Yeah, I, I do love it when they're able to pull off crossovers, though. When the Earnhardt's father and son, you know, raced in the IMSA series or at Grand Am, whatever it was at the time. And then not too many years ago when Fernando Alonso, while still Indy. under contract yeah. to to, um, to McLaren, um, ran at Indy. And also won the 24 Hours of Le Mans two years in a row right. in a Toyota. So, you know, bits and pieces of that magic seem to still be able to happen. But those are somewhat unicorn occurrences. And and I would agree with you that I, I'm just not sure that that same formula with today's parlance of the of that kind of a docket could or would realistically happen again today. And I, that's a little unfortunate because it obviously was great times, great moments, and great racing. And and I don't think likely to be repeated. Isn't that what we all want, though? Great times, great racing. I mean, what? I mean, <laughs> how hard would that be? How hard can it possibly be to sell that? You know, it's just it's there's yeah, so much yeah, well, bureaucracy and rules, and I hate rules. Yeah, bureaucracy, rules, money, money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's another money. big one right there. Yeah, I remember talking Sponsorship to and- Bob Garretson and just in. Just in the perspective of like what racing was like back then, you know, he Bob Garrettson competed in the World Endurance Championship way of back course, in the day in the nine thirty five, and he someone had to call him on the phone and said, "Hey Bob, you could win this thing. You need to ship your car over here uh, to Watkins Glen or or whatever it was at, at, or wherever he was going to go with the car. I don't remember the the track. But like, you need to ship your car over here. You could win this thing." He's like, "Oh okay, yeah, I'll ship the car over. I'll get a plane to go over there and right through the race." It was just. It was a little bit more chill, I guess, is the grassroots. Yeah, it was more grassroots. There's the real people involved. It wasn't Russian oligarch billionaires <laughs> buying seats for their kids so they could go crash on international television. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is true. That's why 
it was so much fun in, in earlier days of endurance racing. Uh, you know, there were, there was, I remember one at Daytona 24 one time. There was a, 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 a very, very small team, kind of a backyard team, although with a little factory assistance from Pontiac, but, but not a full factory effort. It was basically, you know, pro-am kind of drivers and whatever. They ran a Trans-Am in the GT category at the Daytona 24 that still had a, an AM radio in it and an automatic transmission. Wow. That's how how little that car was changed from a street trans am. Right. You know, I mean, of course, they 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 caged it up and put a big motor in it and did all that, but it had an automatic transmission and it still had the AM radio in the dash. Go figure that. I wonder if they listen to music happen. while they that were don't happen around. today. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> if they could, as if they could hear it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Volume all the way up with one speaker in the dash. I guess nobody just felt like you know what are we going to do if we rip this thing out? It's just a hole. Mm-hmm. So we, they just left it. It was just easier. I don't know. Well, now Who it's, knows? now it's every ounce matters, you know, and I have people tell me, I was like, Oh, there's these other, I complain about this multiple times on the podcast is talking about how racing just, it's not interesting. I don't like motorsport formula. E is dumb, you know, hyper, whatever, who cares? And they're like, Oh, well you can watch these other races with these other cars. There's, they still do stuff. It's cool. It's wheel to wheel, like DTM spec stuff. And I go, yeah, but it's not, Back in the day, it seems like the best of the best were driving what I would have wanted to see. Now the best of the best are driving things that I don't care about. And there's something about seeing the, 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 the cream of the crop of the drivers driving the things that I would enjoy versus seeing, like, you know, amateur guys. And I'm sure the racing is good, but it just doesn't seem as compelling to me when it's a bunch of dudes I've never heard of versus, like, man, if you could get Lewis Hamilton in, like, a, a Mazda Speed 3 – Right. And have like, and it, like back in the day when they had like Senna and Prost and all these other guys get in 190 E Cosworths and go out and do like almost like this Porsche thing and then race in these 190 E 16 valves. That was cool. I would love to see that because it's a real car and I can relate with it. I just can't relate with anything that anybody's doing anymore. Uh, th- this is a problem. I agree with you. Yeah. And there, there are certainly some series that are still very compelling, I think. Others, not so much or not as much as they used to be. I, I loved it in the heyday of Indy when you could have an Offenhauser, a stock block Ford, a turbo Ford, a turbocharged Rambler, a diesel, or whatever, out there running in any car. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, now they're, they're, for a whole lot of reasons, many of them understandable. You know, they're much more spec racers than they used to be. I mean, it's all the same body and chassis, and there's two different engines, but they use the same wing and the same suspension uprights and the same brakes and blah, blah, blah. Ain't nobody out there in a diesel. No. Yeah. We're losing the diversity turbo, of or it. A turbo or a turbocharged Rambler. Well, it's getting much worse now with electric and uh, electric motors. There's no diversity in drivetrain. No, none. I mean, it's, I have to be honest. I mean, I I'm, I'm a motorsport guy. I love racing as much as anybody. I cannot in any way get excited about that series. I understand. I mean, I certainly appreciate that electrified cars can play a lot of important roles, mm-hmm. but I, I, I cannot for a nanosecond get excited about electric pre 
Well, what do you want manufacturers to do, though? I mean, we've, everything's moving this way. It's all being regulated this way. The manufacturers have to manufacture this stuff for the for the general population. They're not going to keep racing combustion engines and then sell electric cars. It's not possible. I don't know that I have the answer to that seemingly simple question. If I were that smart, <laughs> if I were that smart, I'd be on my boat somewhere <laughs> or sitting on my pile of money. And I'm obviously not that smart. I don't know what that answer is going forward. Yeah. That's a darn good question. It, it, it is the ultimate question of what happens with motorsport, right? I mean, that is the, the, the ultimate, how do we keep motorsport alive? How do we keep in car enthusiasm alive as we, you know, continue down this road towards androgynous blob vehicles that aren't performance orientated are just appliances and motorsport kind of slowly dies as there's no diversity and, and everything else. And, you know, I think we just all need to just do what we can to prop up what what is even there. You know, everyone's like, "Oh, I'm not, I hate electric cars. I'm going to guess what? I mean, I don't really care about Formula E either, but you know, we might as well at least try to maybe like it. As you know, especially with the hypercar stuff that's coming in Le Mans, maybe we need to try because guess what? If we don't try and the, and it flops, there's it's, nothing. It's, it's our fault. Yeah, at some point. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel you there, and I wish I had the answer to that. I wish you did too. <laughs> I'm not so smart to have that answer. But if anybody will figure it out, it'd probably be Roger Penske. But anyway, yeah, well, call him up and because he because he, he is says. that smart. He is that smart. Well, I'd be interested to, to send him an email and say we want to we want to talk to him and find out what the answer is because it is the ultimate answer. We need to we need to figure this out. Well, in as much as he owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar Series, he's certainly asking himself the same question as we speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sure he wakes up. He, he thinks about it every day. Because they're about, you know, 23 and 24 and 25 right now. So, yeah, the, these conversations are happening in other more hallowed places than just us little podcast here today. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about the – and a lot of guys, you want to be like you want to pass this – this heritage down to the next generation because it means so much to us and we're so emotionally attached to it. Like how do we tie in the next generation into this, uh, into this? A lot of people don't even get driver's licenses anymore. So how do we get the next generation excited? And, you know, I put this stuff intravenously into my body, right? I really <laughs> love this stuff. And how do we get other people interested in it? For me, I mean, I work with my kids on my car. My, I have two girls. We, you know, we tinker on the car together, go for rides, whatever. But they're never going to care about motorsport, I don't think. You know, that's not something I can, I can even make them be interested in. I just yeah, can't. Yeah, it's, it's an issue. I mean, I, I also mainline this stuff. And um, I just, it would, it would be crush, a crushing waste to me to toss away, you know, more than a hundred years of motorsport history. I mean, a lot of people have lived and died and done great and momentous accomplishments, not just in motorsport, but in the world of sport mm -hmm. for all of this that we're talking about. Yep. And to toss away 120, 30 years of that would be a, a crime of huge proportion. And I wish I knew that answer because I need to start thinking about it. Yeah. You see that what the manufacturers do too, is they, they kind of say, well, this is all bad. You know, all this combustion engine stuff is bad. We're moving to this other thing, but don't forget our entire heritage was built on how successful we were with all of this. Like they, they, they want their cake and they want to eat it. You know, so they, <laughs> they want to have the, cause if you look, I mean, 
racing and everything, all the blood that was spilled and the sweat and the engineering and the and the just everything that was done over a course of a hundred years is a, a huge monumental monumental human achievement. And they want to show you that they did it, but they also realize that you know politically and commercially they can't say that it's good. It's just kind of this weird paradox that they have to deal with right now. Unless you're Dodge. Unless you're Dodge, you just build Hellcats and say, (laughs) (laughs) who cares? In the words of Jay Leno, horsepower makes everything so much better. It sure does. It sure does. Well, where can people find your book if they want to buy a copy? I bought a copy. I think it's great. Where can other people buy a copy? Easy enough. Um, Probably the most direct flight is is the eponymous Amazon.com. Uh, Amazon carries it. You'll have it within a day or two and they actually sell it at a bit of a discount off retail. So that's the best price that I'm aware of out there right now. Amazon.com. Also, if you want to arrange for an autographed and or personalized copy, I live just a few miles away from AutoBooks, AeroBooks. That's AutoBooks-AeroBooks.com in Burbank, California. And if you uh, you call up AutoBooks and talk to the owner, Tina, and uh, pre-order one of these books, she will charge you for it and and ask you what name you want put on it or whose name or no name or just an autograph or whatever. And, um, and she will arrange for an autographed and or personalized copy to come straight to your mailbox. Well, that sounds awesome. I hope some people take over and take a look at the book. It's fantastic. The photography is incredible. There's so many great photos in there and great art by my good friend, Glenn Cordell, who's a, he's a wonderful illustrator. There's a lot of his art in the book. It's, it's a fantastic book. I'll be adding it to my, my collection of good books here at the studio. I, I keep all my good yeah. books down here at the studio. It's going to be with my good books. The good book. Well, you know, <laughs> always read the good book. Yeah, I exactly. told you in church, in church, I suppose. <laughs> so if this is the good book that people read, I am happy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us, man. I really appreciate you hanging out you and bet. talking, IROC. I have had a blast, and I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed the same and remember the series or would like to learn about it. And uh, like I said, Amazon.com or AutoBooksAeroBooks.com in Burbank, California, if you want a copy. Or please, and, and I cannot take any of your money at my own website, but please visit my own site. There's lots of stories and all kinds of interesting stuff now and again there at MattStoneCars.com. And I will post Check it out. all Check of these me links. Out. I will post all so, of these links on the on the uh, the show page, the show page, the show notes. On the, all the links will be there. We'll make sure that everybody can take a look. Awesome sauce! And uh, send me a link for this cast when you when you got it done, and I will be checking it out. We'll absolutely do that. Thank you so much again, and uh, take just, care of yourself. Just to see what the heck I said. <laughs> so anyway, uh, great fun, guys. Thanks very much, and uh, thank you all out there in podcast land for listening. Catch you guys next time. All right. See you later. Take care. Well, what was it? What was the two to turn, two to burn? Yeah. I love it. Two are burning and two are turning all the way up. Two to burn, two to turn. I I love that. That's uh, that's my car all the time. Yeah. Turning. Two are burning, two are turning. Can we make a shirt that says turning and burning? I mean, that sounds awesome. It does sound pretty awesome. It sounds pretty good. It sounds very Jake. It sounds like Jake. Is it it Harley one to burn, one to turn? Yes. Yes, it is. Except not really because you're selling it and... And yeah, it's the sad one turn, no burn. (laughs) (laughs)
that's sad. Many, many thanks to Matt Stone for coming on the podcast. I, I cannot tell you, it is a great book. The photography is awesome. It is really cool. Everybody loves all these IROC cars, all the cool colors. And you can find one. I found like race two and it's got a lot of Jackie Stewart and you know, the clip from the beginning of the show. Oh, the actual footage. Yeah. The footage. You can watch it. You can watch the race and sure. they're short because they were made for TV or whatever. Right. It's, it's super interesting. And the book is great. I like, I love the photography. It's so awesome to see yeah. so much done. You're right. What made it is the colors. Like, it's so 70s, in yeah. your face, made for TV, the colors. Yeah. And now you think about color TV was relatively new for right. many people and at the time. to see that and be like, wow, I know which car that is because I can tell by the color. Yeah, it's a long way away from uh, 8K, 4K television. True. So you got to take that into account when you do go take a look. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I guess that's all we have time for for today. We, I guess we're going to be on on Friday for a little bit of news again that's right um, and then uh next monday we've got an episode from jake i'm not sure what he's up to yet i doubt he knows i don't even what know he's up to yet but we'll uh we'll get together on friday take care